Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Welcome to the Best Business Podcast, the podcast for established marketers, entrepreneurs, and CEOs, the ones who want to join me in my mission to create 200 new multimillionaires who solve world problems with entrepreneurship. If that's you, then this podcast was created to give you access to the tools, training, strategies, and tactics you need to achieve multiple seven-figure profits as soon as possible. This world needs the best business you can build, so please get ready, open your mind, believe you can do this, and let's build a better world together for future generations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we are joined by David Barnett. And David has been working to help the owners of small and medium-sized businesses for almost 20 years. As a former business broker and financing broker, Barnett has helped people buy, sell, plan, manage, and finance their businesses. He has also authored six small business books, three of which have become Amazon bestsellers. How to Sell My Own Business is the latest one, with the other two being Invest Local and Franchise Warnings, if you want to go check them out on Amazon. I've asked him to join us here today to talk about buying buying, building, and selling businesses so we can all enjoy the fruits of our labor. So David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor and pleasure to have you there. We actually already been chatting a little bit, and it's like, I got to hit record because this is good stuff. Um, so how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's an honor and a pleasure. And again, I value your time and coming to share with my audience and my listeners. I know you have your own clients and kids to t- be with, so I appreciate your time here. So we just mentioned, like, obviously you got some books. You obviously know some stuff. Uh, I'm excited to learn myself. But how did you get into this? Like, where did it all start? Do you come from an entrepreneur? entrepreneurial family? How did you get into being involved in businesses? Well, you know, great question. Let me, let me tell you about my background because, uh, the, you know, the answer to your first question is no. My mom was a, fortunately for me, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So I had a really great home life growing up. And my father was a, an engineer um, who worked uh, for the government, a civil servant. So there wasn't much entrepreneurialism there. Um, but ever since I was a small child, it always seemed like I was looking for a way to hustle or sell something or do something or provide some kind of service. And, you know, even back, I think 10, 11, 11 years old, I got my first, uh, I, I couldn't get a paper route because they, the newspaper people told me I was too young, but I found a flyer delivery company that would hire me. And I started delivering flyers and saved my change basically until I was about 14 years old. I bought, uh, I mean, I'm in Canada, Daryl, just like uh, where you hail from. And, and so mm-hmm. when I was 14 years old, I bought a used snowblower and uh, started cleaning people's driveways in the wintertime. <laughs> and so it's always been there. It's always been there within me. Even when I was in university, I this is kind of funny. I went to university and studied business because I, I knew that I wanted to be a businessman. It took until about the third year of business school to realize they were trying to turn me into a Fortune 500 bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. That there was nothing really entrepreneurial nope. about business school, right? Yep. Yep. It's about how to fill your cubicle and, and organize your family pictures in the right way and, and push the paper <laughs> along, push the paper along in just like so, so that you work with all the other people who've gone to the same business schools right. and you can all work together and, you know, for these ginormous companies, right? Who are all headed by guys who dropped out of school. Yep. Yeah. Right. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's so funny because I always tell people I have my PhD, my 
public high school diploma because they're like, what did you study? And I'm like, I just read a ton of books. So I, I love that you mentioned that because it's the truth. Yeah. I get clients that are MBA grads and they're brilliant, but not entrepreneurs. Even on the university campus, I was still looking for ways to make money. And I remember once I took an image, uh, you know, this was the early 90s. So I cut out a piece of paper with the school crest on it and I mailed it into the Zippo lighter company. And I, I wanted to place an order for a hundred Zippo lighters with the school crest on it. And they spotted that a mile away, right? They're like, oh, this is like an official thing. So, so they wrote me back and they said they wouldn't do it unless I could give them a licensing agreement. So, oh. so here I am, I was 19 years old, go to the vice principal of the university and I negotiated a licensing agreement to put the school university crest onto Zippo lighters. That's so cool. <laughs> and they signed a deal with me. Yep. And I agreed to give them a percentage of my wholesale costs as a licensing fee. And then I turned around and I took those Zippo lighters. And this was back in the 90s when people were still smoking more than, than people do now. And I wholesaled them to the university's own bookstore that they owned. That's brilliant. And so they sold them for me. Yep. And so I, I made money doing that. Yep. And uh, I've always had my eye out for ways that I thought that I could make money by, by doing a product or service. And when I got out of university, I, I took a job in advertising sales with the Yellow Pages. And of course, this... Again, it was the end of the 90s, so the Yellow Pages was a really relevant media back then. If you typed plumber into Google, you would get a plumbing outfit in California. No matter where in the world you were, that was the result you would get. So people looking to find local businesses to provide a service, they needed that book still. And I did that for seven years, and um, it introduced me to the owners and managers of all these different businesses. So I got to learn a lot about the different business models out there and who people were looking for as far as clients and how people made money in different ways. And it was great because it just it fueled my desire to learn. Right. And I learned a lot more in my seven years of sitting down with people trying to figure out how I could help deliver the clients they wanted than uh, than I did, you know, with those four years in university, aside from a few, you know, technical things with accounting and all that kind of jazz. Um, once I got out of there, out of Yellow Pages, I, I quit. I started a business with a friend. And after about a year, we decided we didn't really like it anymore. So we sold it. And that was the first time I was involved in selling a business. And I did it completely naively. I had no idea what I was doing. We were very fortunate that we did business with a really good guy because at the end of the day, mm. the deal came together exactly as we had wanted, the way we negotiated it. But I learned later when I actually became a business broker that there were so many different things that we had done wrong. Mm. And if the other party had been a jerk, I mean, he certainly could have taken advantage of us. Mm. And um, when I sold that business, I became a commercial debt broker. And so I had a, an office where I would arrange financing for small and medium-sized businesses. I would do this on equipment, operating leases on equipment. I would help arrange bank loans uh, for people. Uh, particularly if they've been turned down by a bank, I would actually sit down and help them prepare a proper loan package mm. and sometimes even take it right back to the same bank. Right. Packaged properly, I was getting them funded. Mm. And then something called factoring uh, facilities, which is where companies have accounts receivable and they're able to turn them into cash. So yeah. I was doing that kind of work with people when the financial crisis happened in 07, 08. And literally half the businesses that I was using as a source of financing went out of business. Wow. And it was around that time that I realized my next opportunity because now I'll tell you a quick little story. I was doing the finance broker thing. I was getting a lot of referrals from people from the main street bankers because if they couldn't do a deal, they didn't want to see someone go to another bank. They would rather you know refer their small business client to me <laughs> if they were looking for a piece of equipment, right? Because I would set them up with a leasing company, let's say, but the rest of the bank's business wouldn't be in jeopardy. Right. Whereas if the person crossed the street to the other bank and that bank said yes to the loan, the new bank would try to get the home mortgage right. and the car loan and the retirement accounts, right? And it, all the business would end up crossing the street. 
So this banker called me and said, Dave, I've got this lovely couple here and um, they're trying to buy a convenience store and they're working with a real estate agent who has written up a purchase contract for this business and it's on a home selling contract. And it says that they're going to get 95% financing within 10 days and they have 10 days to do an inspection, which is how you buy a house. That's not how you buy a business. It's not how you buy a business. So this banker referred them to me because she said, you need to work with these people and their real estate agent to figure out how to actually do a deal. And she said, when when you've got them sorted, have them come back because I'd love to look at it, but not in its present state. Mm. Right. And so I realized that there was this huge gap where I live in my community of people who knew how to put a business deal together and how to buy and sell a business. And so um, knowing that my financing sources were drying up, I said, you know what, it's time for me to make a change. And I went looking for an opportunity and I ended up joining an international business brokerage franchise chain. And I chose them because it gave me access to education. And I was able to, I was the first person, uh, I'm on the East Coast of Canada in New Brunswick. I was the first person in New Brunswick to earn my certified business intermediary designation. Mm which is like a professional designation, much like people in the insurance or mutual fund industry would earn. I had to make three different trips each a week long to do coursework. And then finally I wrote a test and it allowed me to start serving people here um, as a business broker. I did that for three years. I, over the three year period, I sold over 35 companies. It was 36, I believe, by the time I was done. And by all accounts, I was one of the most successful business brokers ever to operate here in my hometown. Mm. But those headlines don't tell the whole story because in those 36 months, while I sold a lot of companies, I also went through several droughts of nine, 10 months each where there were no sales closing. There was no money coming in, but I had to pay my assistant. I had to pay my office rent. I had to pay my household expenses. And so it was this crazy nightmarish roller coaster cash flow of working like crazy. One of my first clients that signed up with me was a franchised uh, fried chicken restaurant. And one of the last businesses I sold was that very same (laughs) franchise fast food chicken restaurant. And so I had that file on my desk for three years before I earned any money off that client. And so I was disillusioned by that point because I had imagined a lot of people get into business brokerage because they know the commission checks can be quite large. Mm -hmm. And so I had imagined getting into it that I was going to have this, you know, either a mountain of money or a Scrooge McDuck money pit to swim in. I I couldn't decide which (laughs) it was going to be. But the, the reality of business brokerage is that you get neither what you get is the empty pool of uh, right. red ink. You get the credit card debt because you live off the credit card while you're waiting for the deal to close, which never seems right. to close. And it keeps getting delayed, delayed, delayed. Then finally, when the deal closes, you get the money and what you do is you pay the credit card right. company. And then if you have any money left over, you're afraid to spend it because you can't be sh- certain about when the right. next one's coming. So it, it didn't work. It was a feast or famine. It was worse than what people go through when they're in real estate or commercial real estate because the timelines can be even longer in business brokerage. Uh-huh. And so I, I left that and, uh, you know, Daryl, the worst thing that can ever happen to someone, I went, I, I, I got a job. So I started working for somebody else and a couple months into it, my phone rang and it was a gentleman who had a business. He wanted to sell the business and he said, I, I was given your name. I'm, I'm told you're the guy who can help me. And I said, well, you know, you're, you're too late. I used to be a broker and now I'm not. And I you know, gave him the name of my former associate who had taken over the office. And then a week later, my phone rang again. And this time it was a person who had found a business they wanted to buy. And they said, you know, I've spoken to my accountant and I've spoken to my lawyer and both of them have given me advice, but neither one really seems to be able to tell me, you know, what I should be doing next in this process or how I should be negotiating it or what kind of offer I should be formulating to do this. And I'm, I'm looking for someone who can just advise me. And I said, well, you know, I certainly have those skills, uh, but I'm not a business broker 
anymore. I have a full-time job. If you want to work with me, I'd have to charge you like a consultant and I can only work with you on evenings or weekends. Right, right, right. And then I just, I stopped talking because yep. I had a lot of sales training my whole life, right? And I know that you talk yourself into sales and you talk yourself out of them too. Talk yourself out of sales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just shut up and I started counting in my head. And by the time I got to the count of like six, seven or eight, the next thing the person said to me was, well, so you can meet me Saturday at nine. And I was like, yeah, I can meet you Saturday at nine. So I had a meeting with this gentleman and I helped him navigate through this deal. And basically I worked with him for just a couple of hours until it became absolutely obvious that this was an absolutely terrible deal that he should not put any money into. And he was really grateful hmm. because I helped him avoid, yes. you know, a quarter million dollar mistake. Yep. And then the phone started ringing more and more. And eventually what happened is it evolved into, you know, now currently this is what I do full time. So I, I work with people around the world who want to buy and sell businesses, and uh, I operate from a menu of services, and people can buy whatever services they want, and I just bill people as I do them. And, and I, I also call myself a project-specific coach because I'll coach people through the process of buying or selling. But one of the other things that I also work on with people is if they have a long enough time horizon before they want to sell, is I'll also work with them on how they can do things in their business to improve the business and make it more saleable. And likewise, those same processes and techniques that I've developed for sellers, what I'm doing now is when people, when I help someone buy a business, I'll let them go through a normalization period of a couple months of running the business. And then I'll implement those same things because the things you can do to make a business more saleable are miraculously also exactly the same things you do to make a business easier to run and more profitable. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, businesses are valued based on their cash flow. So if you can make it, the business more profitable, it's going to become more valuable. And if you can give the business systems, processes, and procedures that can be easily delegated and taught to others, you're going to make it easier to sell. But if you're not selling, you're going to make it easier to run. Yep, right. Most people, from my understanding, when they go to sell their business, a lot of deals are earnouts, And that's because they have to train the new people because they are the business. In a lot of cases, the owner has to get out of doing that, out of being the ringleader on doing everything, has to standardize and process it. I mean, kind of like McDonald's, you want to be, anyone to be able to show up, open up the manual, read along, you know, and follow the bouncing ball and be able to produce the same result. Well, I mean, the, the fact that most businesses are sold and they're not on cash terms, because you use the term earnout, and I think we have to be very careful there because earnout can mean one of many different things. Mm. Most businesses are not sold on cash terms, meaning there's a certain amount of money on closing day and then some money over time. Mm. And the nature of that money over time can, can vary greatly. So, you know, for example, you could say, I'm going to buy this business for a quarter of a million dollars and I'm going to pay the owner 150 on closing and I'm going to pay the balance 100 grand with interest over five years. Well, that's what we would call a vendor note. So the amount paid over time is a debt. So it's a fixed amount of money with fixed terms, interest, payment, et cetera. Mm -hmm. In some other deals, depending on how it's structured, that payment over time may not be debt it might represent some other form of payment. For example, let's say I can't agree with you on the value of the goodwill in your business. And let's say you believe the business is about to take off and do even better. And I say, great, here's what I'll do. I'll buy your equipment and material and inventory for the value of that stuff, but I'll pay you a percentage of revenue for the next five years. Uh. Right. right. So so that would be more of a, a royalty situation where the amount of the goodwill or what I'm paying for the goodwill is based upon future performance. And if business really does take off the way you, Mr. Seller, think, then you're going to participate in that enhanced earnings, mm -hmm. right, in the greater sales. And then we can have all kinds of other variations. So, I mean, I once sold a swimming pool company and swimming pool companies in a lot of places are kind of you know, one of those businesses where a lot of cash business is done. It's not recorded. So, 
you know, a seller can tell someone how great the business is, but then the financial statements and the tax returns don't necessarily support that. So in this particular deal, what we did is the buyer bought the equipment and the inventory and stuff, and then they agreed upon a certain amount per pool installation in the following three years. So now what you've got is a situation where the buyer and the seller both have the same goal. They both want the business to be prosperous, Uh which is what a buyer wants, because then the buyer now knows that the seller is going to be there to help him, coach him, mentor him when he has difficulty, because the seller has an interest in him being successful. Because the more successful the buyer is, the more money eventually is going to come to the seller's pocket, right? right? And so in this particular case, the seller had been in the pool business for like decades and people would call him personally at his house and say, I want a pool, et cetera. And he would refer every one of those calls to the guy who bought his business because he knew that every time the guy built a new pool, he was going to end up with some money. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, this sounds like, feels like the logical next question to ask. What are the biggest mistakes people make when buying a business? Oh, you know, probably the biggest thing that I see time and time again is that buyers fail to recognize the difference between the value of their labor and the return on their investment. Most business buyers fall into the camp of what we call financial buyers. They are people who are seeking to replace an income. Mm -hmm. So they either don't have an income or they're in a job they don't like. They want to pursue a career in self-employment. So they go looking for a business to buy and they typically look at a cash flow figure that we call SDE or seller's discretionary earnings. And this is the total amount of money available to an owner operator. And they'll say, Hey, you know, I would love to have this income and I would love to do this work. Right. So they're buying a job and they're making an investment. And so what they fail to do though, a lot of the times is they fail to see that when they're doing the work in the future, that labor has value. Mm. So they need to take that into account. And then any earnings in excess of that would be the profits on the investment, right? So I tell people out of that seller's discretionary earnings, you have to be able to, number one, take home a fair market wage for what you're doing that will support your family. Number two, you have to be able to service debt. So if you borrow money from a bank or something to buy the business, you got to make your payments. And then number three, this is the one they always forget. You need to make an adequate cash return on the cash you put into the deal. So if you buy the business and you write a check for 50 grand and then borrow from the bank and borrow from the seller, you need to earn a rate of return on the 50 grand Mm -hmm. or else why would you even be bringing it out of the bank? Yep, right. Right. So people do this all the time. And and what, and if you don't adequately consider the requirements on those three different things, what ends up happening is you undervalue your labor and you end up overvaluing the business. And then by the time you realize it's, it's because you've spent two years working 60 hours a week and realizing you would have had more money if you had a job somewhere. Right, 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 right. Right. And, And all the money is going to service these debts you took on to pay too high a price for the business. Right. So how many deals go through? I don't know how the right way to phrase this question, but knowing that, my question then is, I mean, I guess there's not that many good deals out there then. If you have to do a lot of do, it's almost like stocks. Like you can buy a ton, but you you know, they're all kind of mediocre. If you really want good deals, you really got to kind of keep your nose to the grindstone to find them. Is that accurate? If you want to get a good deal, you have to have a plan. And I mean, that's what I teach. So, you know, when, when buyers come to me, I've got this a full day workshop that I do. It's nine hours and I've converted it into an online course so people can do it on their own time at home. I teach people the process of buying a business. And then the next part of that is a a self 
coaching program that has 12 steps where I show people the actual process of going out and preparing themselves and finding the businesses. Because here's the reality is you, you hear about stock market, you know, businesses on the stock market are valued at six to 12, maybe 15 times future earnings, right? right? right. Small businesses are valued nowhere near that level, very low multiples. Okay. So when most sellers find out what their business is worth, they go, Oh my goodness, why would I sell for that amount? All I need to do is stick around for a couple of years. I'll get the same money. Uh Right. So people don't sell businesses to quote unquote cash out. Uh That's not why they sell them. People sell businesses when they need to. Uh So divorce, death, relocation, you know, retirement, those are the reasons people sell businesses because if it's a good profitable business, people won't sell them. They'll keep them because they need what it gives them, which is the cash flow, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. They need the revenue. So what I teach people to do is how to analyze themselves and their resources and how to match that with potential industries and businesses and then go out and create relationships with people before they reach the point where they need to sell. And that way, when they're ready to sell and they're motivated to sell, you already have that relationship created and you can make a deal to buy a good business. Because if it gets to a business broker, let's say, like when I was a business broker, what I would tell my business owners is, hey, I already know 1,300 people in the region that want to buy a business. If you list your business with me, I'll find a bunch of them that want to buy it and I'll make them bid against each other. And that's how I earn my fee. Right. And so buyers that want to buy smart don't want to get into that right, scenario. Right, right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right? That makes perfect sense. Because it's funny because I feel like I've kind of been doing that. My parents have been bowling forever. I never got into it. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was the adopted kid. But their biological son, my younger brother, he's been bowling. The whole family, the whole family, even like my aunts and cousins, they're all 10 pin bowlers. And my parents have been bowling this town forever. And the owners, like you never see the owner ever. Ever, ever, ever. And this business is a great little business that plugs along. And I'm, I'm kind of just been vetting for that. And now I've heard that the owner's like sick or something. And it sounds like the, his kids are just waiting for him to pass away so they can sell the business. But it is a great little business, that little thing. And they do, it's so neglected. My, my mom almost built that business for him too when we first started. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but whatever. When we were kids, my little brother was born. When he was two, there was no kids bowling league. Yeah. So my parents started the kids bowling league. My mom ran it for almost 20 years, purely volunteer basis when we started they had one lane one lane on like 25 lane bowling alley and now today the shift there's two shifts of kids that go and bowl there every saturday wow. and my parents started that for my little brother and basically grew the whole thing and so i'm like you know that'd just be the perfect little retirement business for my parents i feel like so anyways, hearing you say that i'm like okay that's what i'm doing because i've already been playing around and asking about it and thinking and anyways that's just but that's it get to know the people first beforehand because it's going to be some sort of major life event is when people need to sell then they become urgent uh or yeah yeah, motivated sellers. Yeah. And then obviously, like you said, it's up to the broker to kind of, you know, auction it off to their audience of people that are wanting to buy. So the good deals go fast. Yeah. And the majority of businesses uh, are sold privately mm. because when business owners realize they're at the point where they need to sell, you know, people don't want to pay someone a commission. Mm. You know, a lot of homeowners, if they had a choice, would probably not hire a real estate agent. Mm. They, if they thought they could get the right price by dealing with someone they knew, they do. Yep. Right. And we see that a lot of the times. So when a lot of business owners, get to the point where they need to sell, they they start talking to people. And businesses are always sold in private because if it becomes public that a business is for sale, the business can be damaged. Mm. And so you always hear about the stories after you know, businesses are sold like at the Kiwanis Club and the Rotary Club and all these places where these business owners gather. And then when it's time for one of them to sell, they start asking their lifelong friends, you know, hey, do you want to buy this business or do you know someone who's interested? So you either have to get ahead of that event by having a relationship with them directly or, you know, you need to be in that circle. Uh-huh. 
mm-hmm. right? And this is why in a lot of communities, what you find is that you find several of these big wheel players that end up owning a lot of different businesses. It's because of these networks that they built over time. They get offered the businesses that other people aren't being offered. Mm, got it. Good to know. Really good to know. So for yourself in your own career, what were some of the biggest challenges that you had to face? I know you talked about being the business broker and, you know, basically there wasn't enough volume of deals. It's, and, you know, in the lead, uh, the sale time, it was just too long of a sales process. But in general, like personally or even just with skill sets, what were some of the biggest challenges you felt like you had to overcome in your business career? Well, you know, the, the problems with business brokerage were actually not volume or lead time. Oh. The problem was control, okay? So in the last year that I was in it, I had six different deals that were set to close and they were going to bring in a quarter of a million dollars that fall in commissions. And one deal fell apart because a bank rescinded a financing letter they had issued to the buyer. Another deal fell apart because it was a regulated industry and the government department wouldn't issue a license to the buyer. And a third deal fell apart because it was a franchise business and the buyer and the franchisor had a meeting and they were just total jerks to the guy and he left the meeting saying, I love this business, but I will never get into a control contractual relationship with those guys. Mm. And so three of my six deals fell apart and had nothing to do with the buyer, the seller, or me. Really? Right, right, right. We had made the deals. Everyone wanted to do the deals. It was these outside parties Mm. that upset the deals. So that was the final straw for me. As I said, you know, if I'm going to go and sell widgets to someone, you know, I can demonstrate the widget and they can make a decision if they want to buy. Like that to me, I mean, ultimately it's their choice if they're going to buy or not, but I can have control over what I do. I can choose how many, you know, prospecting calls I make. I can choose how many sales calls I'll go and do. I can decide the level of effort I'm going to do. But in the business brokerage world, there's so many moving parts, all these people around the deal that you can't control. Right. And and so that was the biggest point of frustration for me. And in general, for many people, I mean, I've got a YouTube video where I talk about why I left the brokerage industry. It's got almost 7,000 views. And the commentary is just a big string of past business brokers or people looking to get into it saying, wow, thanks for being honest, you know, about, about what's going on. Because so many people get into it and they last for a year, 18 months, they maybe do a deal. And because it takes a long time, like you said. And then they just realize, you know what? I can't do this. Mm. It's why so many people in that industry are like retired people, Mm. right? Because they've got that pension check coming in. They're not worried about how they're going to pay, you know, their monthly expenses. They're, They're trying to do extra. So if someone's listening to this and they're just starting out or they're, you know, or they're in a business and they're struggling, what would you recommend for them? You know, you have to be honest with yourself. Uh, One of the biggest problems that I always see whenever I examine a set of financial statements for a business is I see people not being honest. So, you know, I always say that if you, if you operate a business and if you take out the amount of money that you would earn, if you worked for somebody else, it's not really a business, it's a job. Hmm. Right. So a lot of like tradespeople are in this boat, yep. like the plumber with the helper or maybe the plumber with two trucks, like the smaller business people, yep. um, tradespeople kind of stuff. Yep. And then you also see it in professional practices, you know, the draftsman or the architect or the engineer, right? Working by themselves, earning about the same amount of money they would if they were employed. So that's owning a job. If you earn more than that, if you have, there's a surplus above the fair market wage of your labor, then now you've got a business because you have a, an income that represents a return on investment in the business. So now we have goodwill in the business. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But many people are below that mark. So they work and let's say that they would normally earn $80,000 if they were a middle manager somewhere, but they're working in a business and they're taking out 30. Right. Right. Okay. That's not a job. That's what we call a hobby. Right. (laughs) Because you're, you're actually 
putting time and effort into something that doesn't pay. Now, the, the guys who stay in their basements building model railroads, they know that they're putting time and money into something for pleasure, right? They know they're, they're involved in a hobby, but the business owner who works their butt off and takes out this meager amount of money, they're subsidizing the business with their own labor. And so when I get their financial statements and I do a normalization, what I'll do is I'll adjust for the fair market value of their labor. And I did one recently where these two guys work their butts off and they, they've been trying to make a go of this business for 13 years and they've managed somehow to feed their families, but they're both taking about half of what they would earn if they were working for somebody else. Mm. And when I do the normalization, I say, look, there's no cash flow here. You know, if you want to sell this business, um, you may be able to find someone who thinks they can do more with it, but you're not going to be paid any goodwill. You're going to be paid for the value of your inventory and your tools and your equipment, right? So it's like a liquidation. And I said, if you decide you want to sell your business quick, the professional you need is actually called an auctioneer. Wow. Right. And it's it's hard for a lot of these people to to listen to. But the reason that they got into this scenario is because they don't recognize um, the true value of their labor, for example. So if they sat down at the end of the year and they said, look, I took a T4 of this amount, but really my labor's worth 70 grand, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then they adjusted it, they would see in black and white that this business has lost money. Mm-hmm. If the business had to pay me what I'm worth, it's lost money. And what that will allow people to do is get to the point sooner when they realize it's time to kill the business. Because, Daryl, I think it takes an incredible amount of courage to get into business. Even more to walk away. But I think it does because people become personified with the business, right? And they're afraid. Like at the end, when I decided I had to get out of business brokerage, one of the things that I really thought in my head was, oh my God, when people find out that I've closed this office, they're going to think, ah, David's not quite as smart as he thought, eh? David's not the the guy we thought. He's, you know, he's a failure. And so those were tough thoughts, tough ideas. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy here in town. He's a franchisee. He's got about a dozen pizza locations. And the pizza chain that he's a part of, the brand, they brought out a submarine sandwich brand. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to get their pizza franchisees to buy the submarine sandwich outfit. Mm -hmm. And he opened one. And like five years less a day, he like closed it and stripped the place out because he wasn't making money. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I said, you know, were you ever afraid that people would think that you were a failure because you didn't make that store succeed? And he said, he said, you know what? I love my restaurants that make money for me. Because they make money for me. <laughs> that one was losing money. I hated it. Yep. I couldn't wait to get my hands around its neck and just strangle yep. the thing and yep. kill it. Yep. Right. And as soon as he didn't have to be personally liable for that lease, out came everything. Yeah. Right. And he was done with it. And and so people are not their businesses. And you need to have a true recognition yep. of what you're doing. If you're trying to start a business, you know, I understand that there's a ramp up period. But so many people have been in something for years and they're still not performing at the level that they should be. And then they're still not earning at the level they would be if they were working for somebody else. And that's got to stop. People either have to fix it or they have to move on. Mm-hmm. That's some great advice there. And I think that's really eye-opening probably for a lot of people on the call is that concept, what would it cost to pay someone to do what you do in the business? Because what I love about this point of view is that it treats it like what it should be. So uh, anyone that's gone through Rich Dad, Poor Dad stuff, a big trend back in the day, um, you know, they they know that there's employees and self-employed people. And then on the other side, there's business owners and investors. And Mm -hmm. business is like you said, when you look up uh, entrepreneur in the dictionary, I love this. One of our guests did this. Brad Martineau. It was a great interview I did with him. The Six Laws of Business Success. Another interview anyone might want to check out. Mm-hmm. 
But he talked about, and I use this all the time, when you look up entrepreneur in the dictionary, it's like a person who organizes a business or businesses. It doesn't say the person who answers the phone, mops the floor, cleans the toilet, right. you know, makes a sale, does the accounting. That's not it at all. And so I love what you say. Like if you can't get a team of people together to perform the function of that business and keep things running and flowing, then you have to acknowledge at some point that it's just a job. And Like anything, like, because I feel like a lot of people abdicate or they just hand out other people like the doctor control over their health. And I think people do that too, even with terms of their finances and their time and energy. So what I love about this point of view is it's really tr trying to take control of your own life and your own business and be like, look, you know, is this legit? Should I just be working for someone else? Right. Or, and maybe there's trade-offs. Maybe they enjoy the lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe they enjoy, but then at least be real with yourself about the scenario that you're in. So well, you know, it's important about lifestyle because in my Business Buyer Advantage program, when I'm talking about valuing businesses and making offers, I actually challenge people to quantify qualitative things. So I'll, I'll say to people, you know, if you're in the middle of the big city right now with the commuting and the you know poor air quality and, and the crime and all that kind of stuff, and you really want to be living out in the country, what is that worth to you? You know, because if you say, you know what, that's worth $25,000 to me, great. Now you can use it to actually move the stick in, in what you're looking for in a business, uh -huh. right? And so if you're faced with an opportunity where, you know, all of a sudden you're like, hey, this is an opportunity. I love the lifestyle. It's out in the country, but it's going to cost me 50 grand a year uh -huh. versus, you know, the 25 I was comfortable with. Then you can say, you know, do I want to wait for the next thing or do I want to move forward with this? There's a concept in negotiating called BATNA, which is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Mm -hmm. And I talk with people about that in some of my programs. And it, it highlights why some people are willing to pay more for businesses than other people. So let's say you're living in the United States and you grew up there and you went to college and you know you have pretty good employment prospects. Like if there's a job available, you're going to be able to get one, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you compare that person with someone who's newly arrived from a new country, right? Who doesn't speak the language nearly as well, uh, but they come with resources. So they're coming from, you know, Korea or Japan or someplace like this, and they have some money in the bank, but they don't have a job and their employment prospects are more limited because of the language barrier and maybe their professional credentials aren't recognized in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. So that person, their alternative, the best alternative to not doing a deal is to get a, like a menial level of employment, right? Working in a grocery store or something. Mm -hmm. Your best alternative to not buying the business is being gainfully employed at a, at a good way. Age, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. So that person whose alternative is really bad, they're going to be willing to pay much more for the business right. because they're constantly comparing what they're going to get by owning the business versus what their options are if they don't. Right. And so this is why certain industries in many communities end up you know, changing hands into the hands of newcomers because there are businesses that are maybe easier to run with less of a language skill. Um, so, you know, gas stations, convenience stores, laundromats, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, and it, it really helps people keep from getting what I call buyer fever, which is when they get so excited by the idea or notion of being yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you can get yourself so whipped up, Daryl, about that bowling alley. You're going to have dreams of yourself, you know, mm. having your friends over at midnight, having a secret bowling party in your bowling alley. Like you're going to get so wrapped up in the <laughs> romance of that idea that you end up paying more than you should. Right. Mm. And so by constantly looking at that bat night, it helps to ground you against doing something that you normally wouldn't want to do. Right. I forget how to say it, but there's a great quote about, you know, never go into a negotiation without something about never negotiate anything. You're like never negotiate a deal you aren't willing to walk away from or something like that. I forget how they Yeah, it. it's about it's about detachment, right? Yeah. It, it's about knowing that you don't need the deal is something you want. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
objective about it. Yeah, I'm very objective about the bowling. I really don't have... It's funny because every time I go... Because my parents have been bowling in that community now. My brother's, what, like 26, I guess? They've been bowling in that community for like 25 years. Almost every single time I go to the bowling alley to see them, which is not often, there's always someone that they're like, who's this? And they're like, oh, is there other son? And they'll be like, I've known you for 15 years. You have another son? <laughs> like, it just it happens all the time. But yeah, no, I totally... I get what you mean because I had that experience. That's when I mentioned that. People on the show probably know I had a martial arts school. And that's how I even got into it was I was dealing with the owner and his wife about buying it. And we basically had hashed out a deal, at least I thought. And I got a letter from the Business Development Bank of Canada that my loan had been approved. And I was, I remember driving down there. I was on fire. I like, I felt like I was like, like light was beaming from like my, I don't know, chakras or what, but I felt like I had light beaming through me and that I was like shedding skin like a snake because for me it was, I was stepping in from having to get handouts from people Mm -hmm. and be, you know, being an employee to being a, you know, captain of my own ship type thing. And I was so elated. And then when I got there, they weren't as excited as I was. And I found out that someone had come in and beat my offer on price and terms. And there was some social drama in that because it was a tight-knit community. But uh, so I, I know exactly what you mean by being romanced because I was like, I was distraught after that happened. I just was like, but I spent three months working on that deal and all this stuff had happened. Yeah. And like exactly you said. And so it really does help to have other alternatives. We all have daydreams or ideas about where we're heading, right? That's what's one of the principal tenets of, of creating goals, right? And setting a future vision of where you want to go. Uh-huh. And when all of your time starts to be focused around this path, which includes you being in this business, to the exclusion of other paths. So other pathways through life are starting to fall by the wayside, right? Uh-huh. So you're, you become fully committed to everything I can see for my future involves me being the owner of this thing. And then someone says, oh yeah, but I need five grand more yep. or I need 10 grand more. Yep. Yeah. You're like, well, well, no, I'm committed. I don't see any other options in my life except this one. Then yeah, that's when you end up paying the extra money that you never really should have. Yeah, yeah. That's a valuable lesson. It's a really valuable, and, and that's transferable to so many other scenarios. Mm-hmm. A car. I got. I bought a car. I bought a lemon as a car. My first car I bought was a T-Bird, and the guy was like, the carburetor was cracked or something. He was like, mm, it's okay, but for the same price, you get something better. But I was already married to it. I'm like, I'm getting it. And I got it. And I remember I was having issues. I brought it in, and he was like, dude, I told you. Like, why are you surprised? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that's such that's such a transferable lesson. Yeah, always know your alternatives. Always have Plan B, Plan C, um, and know what you'll do in in case it doesn't. What, hope for the best, plan for the worst. I think is a great little axiom for that. So, what was some of the best advice you've ever gotten? You've ever the received? best advice that I've ever received easily is that the the terms are more important than the price. Mm. In my own business life and in the deals I've worked on with other people, like I had this one scenario where I told the guy his business was worth four hundred thousand dollars, and um, he told me he wanted to ask 500 and and we found a buyer eventually who did his own work and said he wouldn't pay a penny over 400 and they ended up doing a deal at 430 and the reason that the buyer ended up being agreeable to it was that the seller was willing to finance a huge amount of the purchase i think it was almost three quarters of the purchase over 10 years at two percent interest right and so so the buyer couldn't get that kind of finance terms from anyone except this guy Mm, okay. And and because he was willing to do it, the seller ultimately got more money. Yep. Well, because the guy becomes more confident in the business he's buying as well. Well, yeah. And, you know, the reasons why the seller did it were he wanted more money. But, um, you know, in his particular case, he was in his late 80s and um, hadn't saved anything up for his retirement. So he literally wanted to create a, a retirement annuity out of this business he was selling and wanted to make sure that he would basically, you know, the, the note would likely outlive him. Mm. 
So it was, at the end of the day, it was win-win for both people, but the, the terms of the deal made it worthwhile for the buyer to pay more than he wanted to. That's right. Yeah, that makes that's good. That is good advice. That's really good advice. I was just thinking about that because I think that there's instances where I've realized that, but I, I could never articulate it so well. But that's exactly it. I mean, even if the guy had agreed to pay 500000 with the right terms, it would have been a no-brainer, right? Well, well, yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking about an interest rate that's you know below the real rate of inflation, right? So what habits do you feel you see, like your most successful business owners that you've seen and the clients that you work with? What are the habits or rituals and behaviors that you feel that the people who do the best have? It's discipline to stick with a commitment. So you know, I'll give you an idea in my own business. Three years ago, I started to record and release a video every week on YouTube. Right. And I adapt that video into a little article, which I can post on places like LinkedIn and stuff like this. So the commitment to doing something something regularly has built my business into what it is today. And so now in, in my business today, I earn more than I than I did when I was an employee. Mm-hmm. And every week I have potential new clients that contact me that want to talk about doing business. And it's because I now have over 200 sort of hooks in the sea with 200 different videos and, and all the posts and articles and blog posts, etc. And so many people get off to a fiery start when they say, we're going to do this now. And they'll get, you know, they'll do it for nine, 10, 12 weeks. And then it kind of fizzles away. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you have a podcast. How long have you been going? Uh, we just had our 200,000th download like earlier this week. So we've been doing it at time of this recording. We started Christmas Eve two years past. So that puts us about two and a half, two and a half years. Yeah. Have you ever heard the expression pod fade? No, but uh, it makes total sense. Because most podcasts out there, they last for like nine or 10 episodes. And then people, people don't see the explosive uptick in listenership. They don't think, oh, you know, where are my, you know, all my fans and where are all the people that, you know, are contacting me? They don't see it right away. And so they lose energy and they quit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so having the discipline to maintain the consistent behavior and commit yourself to a certain plan of action when you can see examples of it where it's working around you for other people. To me, that's the biggest habit for success is just consistent application of a formula that you know is going to work for you. That formula part is really important. We call that buddy of mine, um, Dan Fagella, who we'll have on the show again. He was on the show before. We call it the black uh, black Lamborghini test, where you take a look when you want to go into a market or an industry, you take a look at all your competitors, and you take anyone off the table that can't realistically walk onto a car lot and sign up for a Lamborghini and be able to afford the payments. And that gets rid of 90% of the people. And then you take a look at who's like left. And then from those people, you try and find the common denominators. Like, what is it that's making these people be able to perform at such a high level compared to everyone else in their industry. That's a great thought experiment, like, you know, about the car. I like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, again, because there's tons of people out there and there's tons of people making noise. And especially in today's day and age, you can go on Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R. You can go to Fiverr.com and spend five bucks, get a really pretty logo. You can get a slap together with your free WordPress blog or go to some, you know, web tool and have a really pretty looking website. And from the outside, everyone will be like, look at this guy. It's so shiny. Everything he's got, it looks so shiny and new and crisp, right? But then you don't see behind the scenes. You don't see. It's funny because I'm drawing an analogy to martial arts, but I remember you could really quickly pick up if someone's been training a while or someone's new because the young guys or the new guys, not, not necessarily young, but the new people, 
I'm saying guys because it's mostly men, but women do participate as well. They always expand. They always, like, how long have you been training? Oh, I've been training for years, man. Like, oh, really? And then you talk to the guy that's been around five, six, how long have you been training? Oh, I've been training for a little while. You know, <laughs> I've done some things. Like, it's just, it's total opposite. It's like the guys that have no experience are trying to puff themselves up and seem bigger. And the guys that are bigger want to, you know, they want to be acknowledged for their hard work. And, you know, they don't want to be brushed off like, oh, of course you're good because you've been training for eight years, right? So you see the same thing and same thing in business. It's really tough. Now, oh, this is a great question. Where can people people go to get that sort of data is there any sort of directory if you want to do research on an industry how do you find out what like how do you get estimates for sales and stuff i've got some but i would love to know your answer yeah so because i'm in this business i've got access to paid databases where i can look up past sale transactions and i can get all kinds of industry benchmarking data and stuff like that there are um, companies out there that sell reports um, if you did a, a search like let's say bowling alleys you said bowling alley industry benchmarking data, you would ultimately find either some articles from people in that industry, maybe a trade publication where they've written something that you might be able to glean some numbers out of, or you would find uh, some of these companies that actually create and sell reports about industries. Um, And they can range anywhere from a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars. And the way that I always say it to people is, you know, you're either a guy like me and you subscribe to these databases to have access to them all the time, or, um, you know, if you're thinking about spending half a million, three quarters, a million bucks on a business, you don't want to shy away from informing yourself as well as you can, Mm -hmm. even if it costs a few hundred or a few thousand bucks. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, one of the reasons why people ultimately end up hiring me and working with me is because I sort of represent insurance, right? Mm -hmm. A protection from making a bad deal, which is really what everyone's afraid of Mm -hmm. from both sides, because the, the sellers face considerable risks in selling a business too. If it's not priced right, and if they don't know what kind of deal to expect, um, they can actually miss out on the right buyer. I've seen this happen more than once where people will hire me because they've been trying to sell a business and they can't figure out why they can't sell it. And after I work with them and go through everything and then set their expectations properly, they go, wow, I had three different buyers I should have done a deal with. And, and they didn't know that the deals that were being offered to them were actually good deals. So the, the sellers risk missing out on an opportunity to sell. And they also risk uh, having to invest too much time because once the decision is made to sell a business, you need to sell it as quickly as you can. Because if word ever did get out that it was for sale, the, the business can be damaged. And because people only really sell businesses when they need to, one of the things that often happens is that the person has lost the passion and drive for the business. And an owner with no passion and drive will ultimately ultimately have an effect on sales and profit. Right, sales will start to decline. The consistency of what's delivered to the customer will start to decline, and then ultimately profits decline, and then the value of the business also starts to decline. So once the decision has been made, you got to act fast. So the place to do that research, I, I agree with everything you said. The place you said is just look up like industry, whatever, benchmarking reports, or what are the name of some of the paid databases? Well, like one one is called Ibis World, for example. Uh, they do reports on different industries. But let's say you're going to look at a pizzeria. I know that if you did a search for pizzeria benchmarking data, you would find all kinds of industry and trade publications where you would be able to kind of go through articles and find some of that data that you'd want to look for uh, or work with someone like me. Like when I do uh, a buyer insight analysis with someone, uh, one of the things I do is I'll compare the subject business with the databases I have access to and I'll give a, a value range. So I had a guy down in Texas who was looking at a sandwich shop recently and I was able to tell him, you know, this business is worth between $130,000. Hmm. The asking price was like 179. So he got the information he needed to know where he had to go in negotiation. Hmm, hmm, hmm. 
so valuable. There's some great – I mean, this is definitely an interview people may want to listen to again, second or third time, especially if you're in this right now, if you're either looking to buy or sell a business. I think we've covered some phenomenal stuff. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Well, not really. There's there's a ton of different topics that uh, that we can get into. I mean, my, my experience with franchises, for example, led me to write my 2015 bestseller, Franchise Warnings. It's one of the few books out there that actually take people step-by-step step through some of the big claims the franchise industry makes uh-huh. and shows you why those claims may not be all that they appear to be. Um, and then, you know, if people are interested in learning how I can help them sell a business, uh, they just need to go to howtosellmyownbusiness.com. And if somebody wants to buy a business, my website is businessbuyeradvantage.com. And of course, uh, my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, there's like 300 posts, there's hundreds of videos, there's all kinds of articles, links to other interviews I've done, and just a ton of information for someone who wants to learn about this topic. Mm, that's awesome. And Barnett is B-A-R-N-E-T-T for anyone that's interested in reaching out to David. David, you gave some great info. Some, I mean, again, we talked about the challenges the business owners face. We talked about buying and selling and the pitfalls of both. And hopefully some people listening to this may gain some insight for themselves. Like thinking about the future, even if you don't plan to sell, it's a good idea, I think, to take the steps that we talked about to help prepare your business to be sold, if only just to give yourself some clarity and insight. I know that there's I've been businesses that I've been a part of that have tried to get ready to sell, not even because they were selling. And they found out that there are lots of staff and employees that kind of were getting paid for a ton of idle time. Because when they tried to really get down to like, what's everyone doing? They noticed that some of these people were just kind of hanging, you know what I mean? Like hanging out and not doing a whole lot when it came down to what are we actually paying for you to do around here? So I think that there's a lot of value in everything that we, we said and wrote. And I highly encourage anyone that's interested to go check out David's books on Amazon. We've got, it's got six, but how to sell my own business is the latest one again. And we had invest local and franchise warnings. That was actually before the call. I'd asked David some questions about franchising and it was really insightful for me. So I'm probably going to pick up a copy of his book. And then again, what were the web URLs, David, if someone wants to reach out? Yeah, someone who's interested in selling, it's howtosellmyownbusiness.com, just like the book title. And uh, for buyers, it's businessbuyeradvantage.com. And uh, sort of the the central place where everything rotates from is davidcbarnett.com. Perfect. David, thank you so much for joining us. I know you could be spending your time with your clients or your kids. And so I appreciate you coming and sharing with everyone here. I know that I learned something and I hope my listeners learned something. And uh, just thank you again for just being so open and candid and honest. Hey, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on, Daryl. You've reached the end of our interview. Now first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you. Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better. And your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, 
bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.